Happy Sunday. Good morning. So glad that you are here. Uh, my name is Kurt, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and I'm so glad that you chose to join us this morning. We are at the beginning, uh, second week of our Revealed series, as Michael had mentioned. Uh, really walking through uh, what it is that the church has been revealed to be and to do uh, throughout the scriptures. And as we kind of begin a new season and a new chapter in the story of our church uh, here at Existence Church, we want to look back at the original intent of why Jesus actually began the church in the first place. Why, that this, why was this the idea that God had about how to communicate who he is uh, to the world, to us, to people? Uh, and so we're looking back from the very beginning, 2,000 years ago in the scriptures, to see where God's going to take us into the future. And, and in that sense, we're really beginning to lay out uh, and reveal the opportunities that we have uh, as a church to move into a new season. Uh, you may know, you may not, but about six months ago, Kate and I uh, came here and we began uh, a new experience for our family. And as a church, we are experiencing uh, a new season as well. Uh, and so today we're going to actually walk through some of that uh, and kind of lay out some of that. Some of this might be review, uh, but just wanted to catch everybody up. So hopefully you were uh, able to have a great Labor Day last weekend. Uh, hopefully you got to do something fun. Many of you were here, but just in case you weren't. As we looked to the scriptures, we saw that the church is actually the way that God reveals his heart to the world. And that we as the church are the utility piece that gets to reveal God's heart to the world around us. And so there's kind of this two-way street when it comes to what it means to be the church. But many of us, we get stuck in this idea that the church is this address. That you go from one address to another when you change churches. But in, in actuality, what the Bible teaches is that you actually are the church. When you go to work, when you're in conversations with your family, when you're in your neighborhood, when you're in your marriage, when you're parenting your kids at the park and things just go haywire and you have two out of three and that's good enough for today kind of situation, uh, you know, you are the church in every one of those moments and how we are to engage in our relationships actually deeply matters to God, which is a brand new concept that we're going to look at today. But to begin, uh, we looked at this a couple uh, weeks ago and, and we're going to re-engage it today, but ultimately to lay out kind of where we're heading in the future uh, so this is a little bit of a family business for a second. If you kind of call Existence Church home, this is important that you know. Uh, we've created what we call an engagement funnel. How many of you are in sales? Anyone in sales? So you have a sales funnel. You understand how this works. Uh, but this is ultimately what we're going to be walking through over the next you know, few months, that most people you right now are engaging with uh, what's going to become our strategy. We're going to talk about this a little bit more detail in just a moment. And how it is that we engage, that's where you're going to feel the, you know, the idea of what it means to be a part of Existence Church. And we hope that by doing that, you create and you experience, and God gives you a vision for your life that matches his vision for the world. We talked about that last week, that our vision for our life should match God's vision for the world. And that begins to show up in everywhere, everyday, ordinary stuff that you do. And that you would get attached to the mission of the church, and that your identity would be rooted as a part of the church, not that I attend church, but there's something more, you know, in, more beautiful and so much deeper and intense than that, that you would actually see yourself as an embodiment, as a vision carrier, that your identity would be, I am the church. And so we're going to talk about that today, but ultimately, uh, like I said, we talked about these four kind of images that the scriptures show us throughout the New Testament of what the church is supposed to be, that the church is actually the bride of Christ. That, that as the bride of Christ, 
we are pursued and loved by God and that Jesus is actually our center point of our affection and our, you know, devotion is with Jesus. That's what the bride of Christ means. We're going to look at that very deeply today. Next week, we're going to look at how we are actually the body of Christ, that there's a place for every single one of us, that the body functions best together. But yet so often we see in the church that the body is splintered, that we divide ourselves over little things, and we divide ourselves usually over the wrong things, things that are actually never meant to be divided uh, amongst us, and the things that Jesus actually prayed specifically against are the things that we experience most often in our churches as division, but he prays for our unity, that we would be the body of Christ. The third week we're going to look at that we are the family of God, that you actually have a place in the family, that you belong somewhere. That there is something that you are actually designed to contribute and that there's a space in which we look around our world and see each other as members of our extended family. And then finally, the, the church is displayed throughout Scripture, this beautiful imagery as the house of the Lord. That God doesn't dwell in this building, but that we as a church are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and that you are the house of the Lord wherever you go and you have, a, you have an obligation ultimately and an invitation to build and create a beautiful space and to make the church of Jesus beautiful in the world. So that's what we're going to walk through for the rest of this series. And so whether you've been in church for a long time, or maybe you've been away from church for a while, but I think especially for those of us like me, that we grew up going to church and that was a normal part of our life. Sometimes the thing that we're going to look at today, sometimes the thing that we can lose most easily is actually the most important thing. The thing that we can so easily look over and forget is that we actually are the church because we're so used to going to a building. And so you might have had this experience, you know, if I know I have, where maybe, you know, you, we talk a lot about what do we think about God. Even people that wouldn't consider themselves church people, wouldn't say I'm in a relationship with Jesus, they always want to talk about what they think about God, whether God exists, what's God like, how does God work in the world. Maybe you've even gotten in arguments with people. Maybe you and your spouse have had different moments where you have, you know, debates and, you know, healthy, enjoyable, loving conversations. But, you know, sometimes they get heated about what you believe about God or how you're supposed to live as someone that's engaging and figuring out this relationship with God. Maybe you've had a conversation with an old roommate or even a college professor. You got in a debate, perhaps, uh, about what you believe about God. We all have lots of energy around what we think about God. But have you ever stopped to ask the question, what does God think about you? What does God think about you? Because I would offer to you that that question is far more important than what you believe about God. Because what I believe about God, I'll just be honest with me, has changed over time. My guess is if you were honest, you would say, yeah, totally. At one point, Sunday school answers that I was raised with didn't work for real life. And so it became this moment of a crisis of faith. And what I believed about God changed. What I believed about God morphed and adapted with new information and changing relationships and circumstances. But what God thinks about you is stable. What God thinks about you has actually never changed. What God thinks about you has actually been, whether you've accepted it and received it and utilized it in your conscious world or not, is actually the most defining factor about your life. So what does God think about when he thinks about you? Many of us, perhaps, we have this sense that God is always angry. That when, when you, if you were honest, you would say, when I think about what God thinks about me, God is upset. God, God is frustrated. 
there is something that I have done wrong that has caused God to be angry. And so my entire operational status when it comes to my relationship with God is trying to earn or pay back something. Maybe I don't even know what that something might be. And so if you were to define your relationship with God, you would define it with the word sorry. Sorry, God. Sorry, God. I'll do this. I'll go to church. I'll read my Bible. I'll even give money. I'll feed a homeless person. Sorry, God. For something you're trying to make up for. And if you were to imagine God, God looks like this. God has his back to you. He's frustrated. Others of you, you might think of God as he's not angry, but perhaps even worse, he's just disappointed. Which, I don't know about you, I remember growing up as a kid, I almost would have rathered if I did something wrong, my parents would be like, I'm upset versus I'm disappointed. Like, disappointment's the worst, right? And so you, you kind of project that on God, right? That God is just disappointed. He's not mad, but you just never quite make the cut. And so you exhaust yourself trying to figure out what to do right, to move the pieces in the spiritual realm, to put yourself back in a good standing with God. And it has burnt you out. You try to do it with business, you try to do it with relationship, you try to do it with church. And in your prayer life, maybe your relationship with God is defined by the word, yeah, but. Yes, God, I know you're there, but. And there's always this sense of uncertainty for you because God's just disappointed. For others of you, if you are really honest, the concept of God isn't personal. It's a distant, metaphysical, theological construct. That maybe God exists, but he certainly doesn't care, and he wasn't there for you when you needed him the most, and he seems to be blessing all the wrong people and leaving all the right people out, which you would put yourself in the right people category. We all usually do. And for you, God is just kind of uninterested, uninvolved, distant. Maybe representative from an absentee family member or, or a, a scar emotionally or spiritually you still walk around with that has yet to be healed, that God wasn't there when you needed him the most. And so your relationship with God is constantly trying to get God's attention, always failing, always feeling like he's paying attention to someone else but not you. And so you would classify your relationship with God as over here, over here. Look how I'm parenting over here. Look, look what I'm doing for you over here. And, and you would find yourself, if you were really honest, running this circle, this rat race of trying to get God's attention. Not even his affection, just for him to look at you for just a second. And again, also, exhausting. And to let you know, you're not alone if you feel like you're in any of those three categories. I've been in all three. Sometimes I've been in multiple ones at the same time. Really, really a mess, right? But yet when we look at the scriptures, specifically at the life of Jesus, he shows us something so radically different than any of those three. He showed up in a time and space in the world where many, many people believed that those three things were true. That their relationship with God, ultimately, factually, their relationship with God was one of trying to appease and you know, pay him back for things that he did wrong. That was the religious system set up for them. Then God went silent for 400 years again. And so they kept seeming yelling at the sky, praying for big things, and they keep seeming to bounce off 
the ceiling in their relationship with God was that God was angry, disappointed, and distant. And so Jesus shows up in the midst of that, and Jesus shows up in the midst of your story where you might feel God is one of those three ways and shows us something so different, so revolutionary, that it actually changes this image of how we view God. It, it, it changed the first century, and it can change your world today. It says this in Ephesians 5. Paul, who wrote this book to the Ephesian church, reflects on how much God cares about you, and he puts it in the context of a challenge to redefine our relationships here on earth, specifically in marriage. And it says this, Husbands, love your wives just as, and then here's the descriptor, Christ loved the church. And what did he do when he loved the church? He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Notice the word play here of what Jesus did and what that does for the church. We talked about this verse when we taught our marriage a few weeks ago. And not, not only does Paul redefine marriage in this verse and in this structure in the book of Ephesians, but he redefines our relationship with God because he makes marriage the picture of ultimately the truest thing, which is how God sees you and me. That our marriages, those of us that are married, are to reflect the reality of how God sees the church, not vice versa. <laughs> that how often we put on God what we experience in our human relationships. But God says, no, no, have your human relationships reflect what is ultimately stable and true, which is how God views you. That you are the church, you are the bride of Christ. And I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself that way. Sometimes it feels a little distant or weird. But if you were to put in a religious context the relational connectedness of a bride and her husband, it would not compute. It wouldn't make sense. You can't have a contract over an intimate relationship. You can't legislate how you're supposed to interact with someone that you share life, share a bed, share everything that's important to you with. That this is not a religious system where you kind of adhere to some loosely collected beliefs and attend haphazardly on a Sunday at a certain building. That was the old way. And when Jesus entered into the story, he totally flipped everything inside out. It says, actually, religion is over. The way of religion has no place with you anymore. The, the connectedness you have with God is one of an intimate, loving, pursuing relationship. Not that we pursued God, but that he pursued us. That you are the beloved of Christ. And that when you receive and live and define yourself by that belovedness, it not only changes how you see you, but it changes how you see everybody else. That as a bride is not only the object of her husband's affection, but he is also the object of hers. That that is how we are to engage with God. And so how do we love God as the bride of Christ? How do we live into that reality? How do we show our love for God. Well, I'm glad you asked because people asked Jesus that exact same question in Matthew 22. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 22. If you don't have one, you can grab one of the blue Bibles. It's in the seat back pocket directly in front of you. In this Bible, it's on page 483. And to give you some context as you're turning there, 
Jesus showed up and people could tell that something new was happening. As we learned last week, that God is all about making all things new. And so when Jesus shows up, people can tell this isn't just Judaism 2.0. This is something radically different. And so the people, the teachers of the law, the people that were entrenched in the religious system of the day, question Jesus, and they ask him this question, what's the most important commandment? And just to cl- be clear, he's not picking from the top 10 list, right? You've heard of those. Maybe you were taught them in Sunday school. Like, the, the 10 commandments are great, but those aren't actually how the Jewish people viewed this is how we're to live our lives. These were just what it meant to be human. But the Jewish people had actually 637 commandments that these leaders would have memorized and try to figure out how to live by, and many of them were just power plays. But they asked Jesus this question in Matthew 22, starting in verse 34. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, so Jesus had already, you know, kind of showed up the junior varsity team, and so now varsity comes onto the field, right? And they're like, hey, look, you got them. But we're the ones with the PhDs. We're the ones that actually create the system. We're the ones that had the most to benefit by the system of power. And we are really threatened that you're about to dismantle this whole thing and make it open for everybody. And so we have a really important question for you, Jesus. What's the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. As we learned a couple weeks ago, this is the Shema. This was the thing that Jewish people said over and over again, the beginning and the middle and the end of each day as a reference point for what their hope for their life would be. That I would love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all of my mind. My emotions, my spirituality, my knowledge, and my actions would be directed towards loving God. And so they would hear that and go, Good answer, Jesus. Good job. If you had to pick one, yeah, let's, let's go with that one. And then without their recommendation, he says, and secondly, this is like it, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord God with all you have. How you do that, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this, which this is so powerful. Verse 40, on these two commandments, you asked for one, I gave you two, because you always get more than you bargained for with Jesus. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That word depend in Greek literally translates hangs on. Hangs on. I remember we had just moved into a new apartment. This was back when we were still living in Chicago. And it was, uh, the closet was a long, kind of long hallway uh, between our our bedroom and the master bath. And... um, we had way too many clothes for this closet, right? I'm uh, just going to be honest with you. Uh, it was a situation. And I, I thought, let's try to really get everything we can into this closet. Katie's laughing. She's remembering the story. And I would, like, like force, like, shirts in, which was awful because you wash them, you iron them, and they're all nice. And then you, like, jam them into this closet, and everything's a wad, just, you know, stuffed full of clothing in this closet. And I remember one time I came home, and the curtain rod that all of my clothes were on had come off the little latch, had fallen on, and then all of my clothes were on the floor. To which my dog thought that looks like a phenomenal place to sleep. And so then all of my shirts smell like dog, which is not my preference, right? That's not my cologne of choice. 
is my puggles smell. But this moment, I came into our closet, and I wasn't there when it happened, but I imagined the sound when that curtain rod came down. And literally, that's the picture of this verse. Everything, the 637 commandments that you Jewish people cling to, that you know, that you memorize, that you good Jewish boys always know what's going on with these things, and you're spending all of your energy, and it's exhausting you to try to keep everything straight and keep everything in line. All of those things ultimately hang on like your clothes hang on your curtain rod. Love God and love others. And he boils and just distills everything down to this. So if you forget everything else I say this morning, do not miss this. The main thing Jesus hopes for your life, bride of Christ, is that you would love God and you would demonstrate that by loving other people. That's it. It's, it's actually that simple and it's actually that challenging. And in this moment, Jesus radically redefines how it is that we communicate our love to God. Because see, in the religious system, there were sacrifices. You, you sold things, and you burned things, and you killed things, and you went certain places at certain times to try to prove and impress to God, hey, I'm paying attention. I love you. This is how we do it. And Jesus, throughout the New Testament, but specifically here in Matthew 22, says, no, 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 no. That no longer matters. Your sacrifice no longer actually impresses God. What actually matters to God is how you treat other people. You see, so many of us live in an old religious system still where we think that what I do vertically is just between me and God. And so how I treat people horizontally has no effect on that. But Jesus actually said how you show God that you love him is how you treat the person sitting across from you. The person you like and the person you don't. The person that you agree with and the person that you disagree with. The person that looks, acts, sounds, talks, thinks like you, and especially those who don't. Those who love and worship and adhere to the same teaching and try to follow the same God as you, and those that follow a different set of teachings and a different God and a different path. You are to love them. That's actually how you demonstrate your devotion to the one true God is you love those made in his image. This was so radical, so different, so revolutionary. It literally got Jesus killed because it was, it was something that dismantled the religious system. It dismantled the religious system because it made people afraid. Because love is messy. Rules and regulations, ins and outs, rights and wrongs, religious systems and tactics, those are, those are clean. Those are, they, might be compli- they might be difficult, but they're, they're clear. Love, it's awkward. It pulls you into gray areas. It pulls you into spaces where you don't really know the answer, and so you have to decide in the moment, what does love require of me? You have, to, you have to actually sacrifice something when you love. That you don't usually get your way when you love. Love costs Jesus his life for you and for me. And so as we look to this passage, this is not an easy, you know, oh, that sounds great. We've lived in such a world that we have the privilege of looking at that and going, yeah, totally. 
But religion and relationship with God was not defined by love previous to this moment. And yet Jesus speaks straight through the scriptures, I hope, to your very soul this morning, that you are defined radically as one who is loved by God. And I don't know what you think about when you look in the mirror in the morning. I don't know what words you would use to describe yourself. Maybe you would tout your accolades or your education. Maybe you would say, I'm so-and-so's husband or wife or mom or son. I went to this school or I work for this company or I make this much money. I don't know what it is that you would use to describe who you are when someone asked you, but what if we began to simply describe ourselves as the beloved of God? That when your insecurity creeps up and you're wondering what someone across from you thinks of you, you can remind yourself, I'm, I'm the beloved of God. When anxiety makes it difficult to get out of your house in the morning, you don't know what the world has for you, what, what the day holds in store for you, you can remind yourself that you are beloved by God. That when the person at work seems to be doing everything they can to tear you down and make you small, and there's this thing in you that wants to fight back and prove yourself and to do something to put them down, to make it even, you can remind yourself that, that actually doesn't matter because you're beloved by God. That if that was the defining characteristic of your life, I am beloved by God, what would change? What would shift in how you see yourself, in how you see other people, in how you see the world? Because see, if, 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 if we kind of blow this up to a communal thing as a church, if, if seeing ourselves as loved by God takes a back seat, our ability to love other people will take a back seat. Because remember what Jesus said, you love your neighbor as you love yourself. And many of us in this world, many of us perhaps even in this room, myself included, if we're really honest, have a hard time loving ourselves. I'm my own worst critic. Far and away. When you can say stuff about me that's going to hurt, but at the end of the day, you got nothing on what's happening already in my head. My guess is some of you are the same way. That there's something in us that has a difficult time, and often religion is what has implanted this in our soul, that we have something to pay God back. And he goes, no, 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 no. You are my bride. You are the object of my affection. You are so deeply and profoundly loved that in this upcoming generation, Generation Z, which is younger than millennials from 15 to 24, you know the number two cause of death for 15 to 24-year-olds is suicide? Like, imagine that. The number one cause, or sorry, the number two cause of death for 15 to 20-year-olds is self-inflicted death because they don't have a vision of tomorrow where they are loved by God. And social media is not telling them that. Their education is not telling them that. Unfortunately, their families often are not telling them that. But you know who's been charged by the God of the universe to communicate that? Not just to 15 to 24-year-olds, but from zero to infinity-year-olds, however long you want to be on this planet. The church has been, who has been charged by the God of the universe and the creator of every person that you see to tell them that they are radically loved by God. 
It's our job. It's your job. It's my job. To tell people, you are beloved by the God of the universe. Because how we show affection back to God is how we show it to people. See, when the church takes, you know, love and it kind of moves it off the top of the agenda, preferences, tradition, comfort begin to rule the day. And the things that happen when, when that happens is that we become basically nothing more than the old system of rules and regulations, and we look just like your country club, but with less nice amenities. Like, we just have the same social interactions of who's in, who's out, but we don't have the pool and the cabanas and the waiter service. So why put up with those rules if you don't get the pool and the cabana and the waiter service? But yet, some of you, myself included, you grew up in a church like that. Where it was very clear, it was never on the wall. Like nobody ever put it as their, their stated mission statement. But you felt it when you walk in. These kind of people don't belong here. Or you have this situation in your life and that disqualifies you from the love of God. Or, or you have to pay God back for that thing. And yet when the church, the bride of Christ, recognizes who she is and who other people are, the New Testament says so clearly that it is not our beliefs, it is not our moral behavior, it is not our opinions that will convince other people that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is our love for other people, but it begins with understanding that you yourself are the beloved of Christ. Because when you see as God sees, you will love as God loves. Anything in the world, if you saw it the way God saw it, you would love it the way he loves it. Because even the most broken and destroyed and pile of rubble situation or person in your life was created by God. And if you saw that person, that circumstance, that disappointment, that upcoming opportunity, the way God saw it in your life, you could see it with his eyes for just a minute. Everything in your body would change in your affection towards that thing. Some of you parents need to begin to see your children the way God sees them. Not as your own, but as his, and it will shift how you parent them. I have to pray that every day, multiple times a day. Help me see Sarah and Leighton. God, not the way I see them, but the way you see them. Some of you need to see your boss or your coworker the way God sees them so you can love them, so that you can serve them, so that your personal status doesn't take the rule of the day, but their image bearerness of the person and bride of Christ can run dominant in your soul. Some of you, at different seasons of your life, maybe right now, we have to ask God to help us see our spouse, our bride, our husband, as the way he does, so that we can power through the conflicts that we're in, ask different questions, get underneath the challenge that you might be facing or struggling with. Many of us need to see the man or woman in the mirror the way Jesus does so that we can truly love ourselves the way God loves us. Because until you understand and personally experience that, you will not be able to love the world the way God wants us to. It won't happen. It'll come out of striving or proving or religious duty but when you see yourself 
to find yourself as the beloved of God, it changes everything. In John 13, Jesus' best friend, he writes this down. It's something that Jesus said to his uh, closest followers. He says, a new commandment I give to you, which we rewrite over that. But, but people aren't allowed to create new commandments in Jewish culture. Only God is allowed to give commandments. So that little statement, Jesus is saying, this isn't just me, the guy you see in front of me talking. This is the voice of heaven. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. This is immediately before he goes to the cross. He says, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. All people will know that you are following and trusting in me, not by your religious duty, not by your church attendance, not by your opinions, not by how you vote, not by how often you show up at a building, not by how much money you give or how much scripture you have memorized, not by how good you are or how much your neighbor's sin pisses you off compared to your own. None of that will tell the world how much you love and follow Jesus. Only, only how we love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if, if. So if we don't, they won't know. If there's a slip in culture away from God, Jesus says, we got to take responsibility for that. If you have love for one another, when we look at the cross, we realize that Jesus' love for you and for me was not conditional. So there is nothing that you can do that will separate you from the love of God. There is not any sin too big. There is not any miss too small. There is not a situation in your life. There is not a choice you make or a path you go down. There's not a regret that still haunts you every night as you go to bed. There is not anything in your world that can take back the fact that Jesus died on the cross for you. When he said it was finished, he meant it. You are the bride of Christ. You are the beloved of God. What would happen in our church if we actually believed this? If you and I actually believed this. See, when a church gets focused on itself, consumption, preferences, whatever it might be, it quickly drifts into irrelevance. But when it remembers that the church's mission, its job is to love, the church has the potential to restore cities, reshape communities, change hearts, and it becomes an unstoppable movement around the globe, in our city, and in your life. That there is nothing more powerful than people who know they are loved by God and know that it is their job to demonstrate that love to other people. So if this, if this love that we are to have for one another, if this is how all people, according to Jesus, if this is how all people are to know that we love Jesus, that we follow him, how do we do that? How do we engage in that? How does that continue to grow and become real and true in our life, in our church? How do we as a community enable that this community is not going to get stuck in the old system of rules and regulations but that we are following the person of Jesus and creating a space where acceptance is expected, that growth is celebrated, and that every person is empowered to make a contribution towards what Jesus wants to do. How do we do that? How does that happen? It doesn't happen by accident. You never drift towards love. 
because it's inconvenient. It's, it always will require humility. It will always cost you something. So we have to be intentional. We have to be intentional about our belovedness and about showing other people their belovedness. And so one of the things we've been working on as a team is to create a rhythmic nature where this can be something that happens in your life on a regular basis. Where we move beyond just attending on a Sunday morning and we actually become a movement that demonstrates the fact that God so loved the world. And so starting in October and subsequently every first Sunday of every month, we're going to have opportunities for you to begin to understand how do you experience and connect with the love of God for you? How do you connect to his church? How do you grow in that love? How does something that God initiated begins to begin to get roots and grow bigger and more beautiful in your life? That this is something that's ongoing so that you don't stay stuck or stagnant. Or that you're not just dependent on doing it yourself and figuring it out as you go. We're going to have a rhythm every four months. How do we experience an opportunity to serve our city? To, to show that our life is not about ourselves. As a church, we're not just looking inward, we're looking outward. And then fourth, how do we build the house of God? So as we walk through this series, we're going to talk more about each of those things. But we want to let you know that that is coming, that this is something that's going to be a new part of our church so that you can regularly get involved in what we're doing. Because some of you, I know you've been wondering, so is Sunday it? No. <laughs> no. Sunday is the beginning. If anything, Sunday should be like the team huddle before the play. And then we all split and we go to our different spots. And you may not always be carrying the ball. You may not always be the center of the story. But every single one of us has a part to play. Every single one of us has a space in what God wants to do. Because you are the bride of Christ. And so as we engage this, this will be happening, the, like I said, the first Sunday of every month. And we're going to, like Michael said, we're going to work the seasonal model into our church so that you don't have to wonder, when's the next thing coming up? When is the next kind of rhythm happening? happening? But every four months, we're going to cycle through this because spiritual growth is not about new information. It's about being reminded of who you actually are and what you've actually been invited into. And so every September, we're going to talk about Connect. Every October, we're going to talk about Grow. Every November, we're going to talk about Serve. Every December, we're going to talk about Build. And then in January, every January, we're going to talk about Connect. Right? We're going to walk through every time. And so you will always know what your next step is because none of us have arrived, including me. I have a next step. You have a next step because there is more. In religion, you check the box and it's done. But in a relationship, in a loving relationship with God, there's always more intimacy to be found. There's always more belovedness to experience. There is always more of Jesus for you, and you get as much Jesus as you want. So how much do you want? So this is what we're really excited about for the next season of our church. As we launch this, as we step into this new chapter, that there is a predictable way for you to know, hey, I, here's how I know if I'm growing. Here's how I know if I'm on movement. We talked last week that if we stop following Jesus momentarily, our life begins to look like stagnation. We're stuck. We're just doing our own thing that used to work. But God is always creating something new. And so we've set this crazy, audacious goal that by the end of next year, we would have 200 people that walk through all four steps of movement. That that means you. 
that you discover what it means to be connected to the love of God and connected to this church. You discover how you can grow, that you're not just figuring it out on your own, that you discover how you're gifted and what God has already placed in you, the Bible says, since the beginning of time for you to contribute to serve this city that we're not just here for ourselves, but we're looking outside of these walls and that you know that you have an opportunity to build the house of the Lord yourself and connected in community that we can make Jesus' church beautiful and remind the people that are watching the next generation, your neighbors, coworkers, and people that are appearing at the church thinking it's almost over the edge of irrelevancy saying, but I wonder if there is something in it for me still. I wonder if this Jesus that they claim to follow and this truth that they claim to have is actually worth pursuing, but I can't tell because it's so difficult to get inside that if we would demonstrate the love of God in a new way, we could actually see our city changed, our marriages restored, the next generation raised up to follow a Jesus and define their life by who he says that they are and to tell their friends and their future leaders that they're growing up with who Jesus says they are and what they can do. And I don't know about you, that's the kind of church that I want to be a part of. But it takes each of us choosing to see ourselves as the beloved, as the bride of Christ, as one radically loved by God in every moment of our life as an opportunity to demonstrate that love I have for him by loving those around me. To go against the tide of culture that is so afraid of commitment and so afraid of connectionment and to root myself to something and say, okay, Jesus, you went all in for me. I'm going to go all in for you. Not just when it's convenient. Not just when I feel like it. Not just when I want to. Not just when it's easy. I'm going to commit myself to something that has the potential to change my life, change other people's lives, and to create a movement that has generational repercussions. And so we have that opportunity even right now. As we receive our offering, you have an opportunity to invest in the thing that has the highest ROI on the planet because it reaches into the eternal. That you can put your tangible resources in the hands of the infinite God that reminds you and reminds every person that you see that they are his beloved. And so there's four ways that you can give around here. You can put something in the bucket as it comes down your aisle in just a moment. You can text the number on the screen to any amount to give that way. We try to make it as easy as possible. It's a beautiful world that we live in. Uh, there's a secure kiosk in the back as you leave. You can give that way. Or you can set up online reoccurring giving. Uh, that's the way my family and I do it, just so we can consistently invest in the cause of Christ. Because we want to see people experience this level of connection to God. And you get to be a stakeholder in people's transformation. And so for those of you that give consistently around here, thank you. On behalf of the 37 people that have given their lives to Jesus in the last six months at our church, thank you. On behalf of the seven people that have been baptized at our church in the last six months, thank you. On behalf of the children who learn what it's like to trust God, like right behind those walls right now, thank you. And on behalf of the people that are not here yet, one day sit in the same seat you're sitting in, that you created a space for through your generosity, through your service. Thank you. They may not know how to say it, but at one point you were known. 
and you were glad that there was a seat for you. And you have the opportunity to make that available for somebody else. And so for those of you that have never given, I want to invite you to consider it. Not because I'm inviting you to, but ultimately because the God of the universe sees you as his beloved and wants to communicate perhaps through you to someone else that they too are not drifting through this world, not just a collection of matter, but that they actually matter to him and to us. So as we give and as we sing, and as always our prayer team will be up on the back, may we worship God in such a way that we would understand that there is nothing more important that we can give our lives to. So will you stand with me if you're able and receive our offering, and we're going to sing together.